Some of you may be familiar with the name Eddie Rickenbacker. Eddie was the, uh, the number one flying ace in, for the United States in World War I. Uh, after the war, he became a successful aviation executive as that industry began to take off, no pun intended. And then, uh, then in World War II, he wanted to be able to serve again. So uh, as he made himself available, there was a need to send a secret message from the President of the United States to General MacArthur, who was getting a little out of line. Uh, so uh, they sent Rickenbacker in a B-17 with six others on a B-17 crew, and they flew out uh, into the Pacific to deliver that message. Unfortunately, the navigational device on the plane was uh, malfunctioning, and they uh, ended up hundreds of miles off course. The plane ran out of gas, and they went down in the ocean. And Rickenbacker and that crew managed to climb into a single raft that they uh, were able to save from the wreckage that was the size of, of a normal bathtub. The seven of them were in that for 24 days and all but one survived that ordeal. So think about that, that they had this incredibly strange experience of being surrounded by water but dying of thirst at the same time. In fact, the only person who did die was someone who was so overcome by his thirst that he gave in to that and began to drink ocean water. And the very thing that he, thing that he thought would give him life ended up being the source of death. Well, this morning's message is about a very similar experience in the spiritual realm. Being surrounded by water, but finding your deepest thirst unmet, and even finding your efforts to look to that water to be a source of death rather than a source of life. You might find yourself in a place right now spiritually where you feel like you're surrounded by a lot of water, surrounded by lots of religion and lots of spirituality, but nothing is really satisfying the deepest longing of your soul. Well, I think this is a passage that will speak to you this morning. Two Sundays ago, we began a new sermon series in, in which we're exploring the first three chapters of John's biography of Jesus, John's gospel. And in this, it, we are being brought face to face in a fresh way with this amazing person of Jesus. And we're also being challenged by the example of John the Baptist, who uh, provides us an example of what it may look like for us faithfully to follow Jesus. This morning, we're studying the story of the wedding at Cana, which you find at the beginning of John chapter 2. I encourage you to uh, open your device or your Bible and to go to John chapter 2. We're going to start actually by beginning at the end of that account, by reading the summary statement at the end of that passage. John chapter 2, verse 11. This is what it says. What Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Have you ever noticed that, that comment about the signs before? What do you suppose that means? Well, think about how a sign functions. Like an exit sign on a highway or a, a Starbucks sign over a coffee shop, the sign is calling your attention to something that you might not notice otherwise, but it's something important and that you don't want to miss. So John tells us something else is going on at another level in this passage. But one of the really encouraging things about the, the writers of the scripture, the Bible writers, 
is that whenever they talk about a, a mystery, they don't want to keep it hidden. They want to reveal it. And whenever they talk about a sign, they don't want to leave you in the dark. They want you to see it and see what it's pointing to. So let's dive into this story and see if we can discover the significance of it on its face value, but also uh, perhaps um, pull back the, the veil and discover some of the significance at a deeper level. So we find ourselves, as this story begins, right at the very moment that Jesus's public ministry starts. Just as he is beginning to gather together the first of his 12 disciples, and before he is actually set out in his ministry of teaching about the kingdom and performing miracles that demonstrate the power of God at work. So beginning in verse one, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, nonetheless, do whatever he tells you. Now, you might be wondering why Jesus's response it seems so curt. Well, up to this moment in his life, as a baby and as a child, as a young man, Jesus has related to his mother as Jesus, the son of Mary. But now, at the cusp of his public ministry, Something shifts dramatically in him, and now he relates to her as Jesus, the Son of God, who came to rescue humanity and her. Clearly, Mary understands his divine nature, having been a participant in this miracle of his conception and birth. Though it's clear, as you look at this passage and at other passages, that she fully, doesn't fully understand what his ministry will involve or where it will all lead. Verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each one holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So this wedding would have taken place in a, in a private residence and all of the private residences in Galilee were designed in the same way. They had a central courtyard and then they were, they were surrounded by the rooms in which the various family members, the various generations lived and had their common space. We're not told any other detail about this house or its furnishings, except for this one. It's interesting that John zeroes in on this specific detail of these jars. Somewhere probably lined up just inside the entrance of the courtyard where the festivities were being held were these six huge, huge stone jars, each one of them half the size of a 50-gallon drum. Jars like these. John doesn't just mention the jars, but he calls attention to what they are for. We're told that these stone jars were used for ceremonial washing. They would have been filled with water and then used by the guests to ritually wash their hands before and after each of the meals that were part of the wedding festivities. It wasn't to get the dirt and the germs off. It was to make themselves ritually pure before God before they ate their meal. And because a wedding feast usually involved the whole village and because it usually lasted for an entire week, that meant a lot of meals, which meant a lot of hand washing, which meant the need for a lot of water. So why stone jars specifically? Well, this also has to do with the ritual purity issues. 
It was understood from the reading of a passage in scripture, the rabbis understood that clay jars, which were by far more common and were less expensive, could become impure if they came in contact with, with a person or an object that was impure. But their interpretation was that stone jars could not become impure. It didn't matter what contacted them, they couldn't become contaminated. So whenever it was necessary to have some sort of vessel to use in a, in a setting that required ritual purity, they would turn to these stone vessels. So here's something that's really cool. Sometimes we can forget that this is a real place and this is real history. They're making new discoveries all the time in Israel and in Palestine. Well, just five years ago, archaeologists discovered an ancient chalkstone workshop where they made stone cups and jars that's only two miles away from Cana. It is not unreasonable to think that the stone jars at the wedding of Cana came from this workshop that they just discovered. Well, what surprised the archaeologists as they rummaged around the ruins was discovering how many stone vessels had, had been carved from that rock. It was clear to them that many of the Jews in the Galilean area were really scrupulous about fulfilling the ritual purity laws. So keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. So Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water so that they filled them to the brim. Another detail that is important for us to hold on to that we'll circle back to later. Verse eight. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And he did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that, they had, that had been turned into wine. And he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, this is really interesting. Have you ever thought about this? Why did Jesus take the wine first to the, to the master of the banquet? It's because the banquet master was the local wine expert. Of all the individuals who were there at the wedding, he was the person best qualified to evaluate the quality of the wine that had just been created. So to get a feel for what that moment would have been like, I consulted our local wine expert. Some of you have had the opportunity to meet Andy Bridge, the son of uh, Tom and Beth Bridge. Uh, you may know that he's a doctor in Indy, but you may not know that he's also uh, one of the small handful of people in the world who is a certified sommelier, uh, which means that he has ex expertise in the area of, of identifying and, and examining and evaluating wines. So I talked to Andy about this passage. We just walked through it together. And I said, tell me what you see in here as, as you hear this tale unfold. What would happen if someone brought you a, a stone cup filled with wine and asked you to evaluate it? So this is what he said. The first thing that he would do is to check to make sure that it was fit to serve, that it wasn't flawed in some way. And so this would be a just quick, a, a quick look at a quick smell to see if it was improperly stored and had stewed, or if a bad strain of bacteria or yeast had gotten into it somehow and spoiled it, causing it to taste vinegary. If it wasn't faulty, he said, then he would ask, okay, there's no flaw, but is it good? Is it worth serving? To answer that, he would consider three things, the color, the smell, and the taste. Was the color brick orange or inky purple? which would indicate a problem with the wine, or was it a deep, nuanced spectrum of reds? 
And then he would smell it to see if the aroma was pleasing and balanced or if it had an unpleasant bite. And then finally, he would taste it. A good wine, he said, isn't too fruit dominant. It's not overwhelmed by the, the, the smell or the taste of the fruit. And it's not too hot, which means tasting too much, too strongly of alcohol. And it's not too grippy, which is the, the term in the industry for something that tastes too tannic or acidic. He said the best wine carefully balances those three elements in a really pleasing way, in such a way that none of those three features stands out, but all of them fold together. So picture the banquet master at this wedding at Cana. It's the fourth or fifth day of this full week of festivities, and he's tired, and he's distracted, and one of the household servants in the middle of all of the bustle walks up to, up to him and hands him a stone cup that's filled with wine. He glances at it, takes a quick swirl, takes a quick sip. His thoughts are elsewhere. And then his eyes widen. And he stops and he becomes more attentive. This time he slows down and starts over. He inspects the contents more carefully. He looks at its color in the torchlight. He takes in its aroma deeply. He sips it slowly, closes his eyes, savors it, and shakes his head in astonishment. He has never had a wine like this before. Verse 9. And then he called the bridegroom aside. And he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we come back to this comment from John in which he describes this event as a sign. So what is the deeper layer to this event? I think there are actually kind of three layers that we can find in this passage. At its most basic surface level, this was just an act of great kindness on Jesus' part, revealing his loving heart for a person in a desperate situation. In the ancient Near East, a wedding was the most important social event that there was. It was a lavish, week-long feast for the entire village that either reflected well on or reflected poorly on the host. And in a culture that was based so deeply on categories of honor and shame, that meant a great deal. For him to have run out of wine would have made the host the subject of village talk and scorn for years. So Jesus' supplying wine was an act of great grace and generosity, especially as he chose to do this before he believed it was the right time to unveil his supernatural power and initiate his public ministry. So that's one level. And then at a supernatural level, this was a miracle that revealed the divine power of Jesus. Without even a spoken word, Jesus takes a common everyday liquid that has no color, no taste, and no smell, and he turns it into a drink that is prized for its beautiful color, its nuanced aroma, and its rich and satisfying taste. Without even a wave of the hand, 
the second person of the Trinity, who John tells us in chapter one of his gospel. This is the one through whom all things were made. He takes a single simple chemical consisting of hydrogen and oxygen molecules, and he transforms it into an incredibly complex chemical mix of somewhere between 800 and 1,000 different molecular compounds, ethanol and glycinol, or glycerol and, and anthocyanins and tannins and flavins and more. So this was an act of love and kindness, and it was a miraculous display of God's creative power in the person of Jesus. That brings us then to this still deeper layer of significance. John says that this event was a sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. Remember we said that a sign is something that points to something else. It's something you might overlook, but you don't want to miss it because it's important. So in what sense was this miracle a sign? A lot of people who have studied this passage and explored the setting of the story assume that the sign had something to do with the imagery of the wedding banquet. But I'm convinced that there's something else going on here. Something that picks up a different biblical thread and theme. It's not the wedding, but the wine itself that is the sign. To understand this, there are three different things that I think we need to know about wine from a biblical perspective. And one really important historical detail that we need to know about water. So first of all, Wine was often a sort of biblical shorthand for joy, festivity, and celebration. That might not be how we associate wine, especially within the conservative portions of the church. We might be more likely to put wine in a negative category, connecting wine maybe with drunkenness or the abuse of alcohol. And while the scriptures are very clear in denouncing drinking alcohol to the point of getting drunk, there are several places uh, where that is made very plain, wine is seen in the Bible more often in a positive light than in a negative one. It's true that wine in the ancient world was rarely fermented for long, and it was often diluted with water, so it usually had a, a fairly low alcohol content to start with. But in a desert land with few fruits and fewer options of things to drink, wine was considered an incredibly rich and satisfying drink. And the ease with which grapes grew in Bible lands meant that wine was a, perhaps the central feature in every celebration, connecting it permanently with the ideas of joy and celebration in the minds of the people of God. For example, Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, drink your wine with a joyful heart. And Ecclesiastes 10.19, Wine makes life merry. In fact, the Bible teaches that wine is a gift from God to humanity. Psalm 104 verse 15 says, God gives wine to gladden the hearts of men. So whenever the Jewish people drank wine, they thanked God for it. And in fact, that practice carries through for many Jewish people even to today. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. That word of blessing is spoken, and then the wine is enjoyed. So wine, first of all, is seen as a gift from God and as a symbol of joy. Second, wine became a symbol of God's blessings for his people when they were faithful to the covenant relationship that he had with them. 
During the time between when the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai and when the people were taken out of the promised land and sent into exile because they failed to live in keeping with that law, during that period of time when God himself was understood to be ruling his own people, there was a direct connection between actions and consequences that we see in scripture during that period of time. So faithfulness to the covenant led to blessings in this life. Unfaithfulness or disobedience to the covenant led to those blessings being removed in this life. Well, new, new wine was one of the standard examples of God's blessings for keeping the covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 7 Verses 12 and 13 is just one of many examples of this. It says, if you pay attention to these laws and you're careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, your new wine. So wine is shorthand for joy. It is a symbol of God's blessing to his people for their covenant faithfulness. And those two things come together then in the third really important biblical um, notion connected to wine. And this is as we come into the time of the exile itself, when the people of God have been removed from the land, removed from the temple, and they feel far from God. During that period of time, wine becomes a symbol of joyful hope. It becomes a metaphor for that new day that God has promised will come when God himself will visit the earth and establish a new covenant relationship with his people and all things will be put right. The exile, you remember, was the time when God removed the people from the land because they had rejected him and each of them had turned to their own ways so God honored their desire to have nothing to do with him and he removed them from this land of promise. And that was an incredibly, the time of exile was an incredibly painful time for the people of God. It was a, it, there was a profound sense of loss for them and a sense of distance from God. They felt far from him. Well, during that time of exile, God sent messengers. He sent prophets who announced the coming of God's new day when all would be put right. And it was not uncommon for these prophets to use the imagery of wine being poured out to capture the joyful hope of all that was wrong in the world being made right and of humanity being restored to right relationship with God. The book of Joel is a great example of this. In chapter one, Joel uses these, these symbols of the, the blessings having been removed to describe the, the spiritual welfare of the people of God, the circumstances that they found themselves in, in their souls. Joel chapter one, verse 10, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain's destroyed, the new wine is dried up. And then he describes the day when God himself will come to them, the day of the Lord, breaking into their spiritual dryness and flatness and bringing joy to their relationship with him. Here's how Joel anticipates that in chapter three. The day of the Lord is near. And in that day, the mountains will drip new wine. And the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. We, we see an almost identical image in Amos chapter 9, verse 13, which also speaks of new wine dripping from the mountains and flowing from all of the hills. Now, obviously, that isn't meant to be understood literally. It's a metaphor for the abundant and unceasing joy and satisfaction that will be ours when the Messiah comes. And when he establishes a new covenant between God and his people, when he ushers us into his realm of eternal joy. 
What a powerful image in this land of, of dryness and dust when most of the stream beds are empty most of the year. When there's a little, so little that comes from that stark land that is sweet or satisfying. When so much of day-to-day life is so difficult. What a powerful image to think of the mountains running with wine as an image of the abundance of joy that will come when the Messiah arrives. Well, I suspect by now that the sign of John, that John is referring to is beginning to become clear to you. So alongside those three biblical uh, details about wine, I do want to add this other interesting historical fact about water that I think needs to be brought in alongside of it. So during the bleakness of the exile, a group of very religious and devout Jewish people began to form together. They called themselves the separate ones, the holy ones, the Pharisees. And they got the idea that the the best way to overcome this time of spiritual distance from God and dryness was to work themselves out of it, to obey themselves out of it, to to dig their way out of that through their own self-righteousness. So they took all of the Old Testament laws and they set about trying to meet every one of those hundreds of laws. And then, just to make sure they were doing it right, they surrounded those with several more layers of added requirements of their own making. And then they set about trying to meet all of those, thinking that somehow that was the thing that would usher them into the fullness of what God had for them. Well, one day the Pharisees came across Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, which asks, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And it answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So instead of understanding this expression, clean hands, metaphorically, meaning not engaging in sinful activities, they took it literally. Clean hands? Okay, we know how to produce clean hands. They knew that in Exodus chapter 30, God directed the priests who were serving in the tabernacle and then in the temple to wash their hands in a very special ritual way in special basins before they offered the sacrifices. So the Pharisees said, well then, if God wants clean hands, let's give him clean hands. Let's make it a requirement, not just for priests, but for everyone that we do ritual hand cleansing. And let's make it a requirement, not just on those rare moments when a sacrifice is being offered on our behalf, but every single time we sit down to a meal. Maybe that will bring us into the fullness of what God has for us. So these massive stone jars filled with water were there for the wedding guests to wash their hands before every meal during those seven feast days. Not to wash off the dirt and the germs, but in order to satisfy the requirements of a stern and holy God in the hopes that their efforts would somehow bring them closer to him or him closer to them. You know this. What happens when you turn a relationship into an obligation? It dries up, doesn't it? Any relationship, a marriage, a friendship, a relationship between a teacher and a student or a coach and a player, a scoutmaster, a Bible study leader, the relationship dries up and what's left in its place is just the flatness, the, the, the dryness, the unsatisfactory experience of rules and requirements and expectations that you never quite know if you're satisfied. The Pharisees thought the way to bring God near was with water. 
If they could just keep scrubbing themselves and scrubbing themselves, maybe they could get clean enough for God to accept them and draw near. When water is the way we seek to draw near to God, then each new day is robbed of its joy and becomes a weight instead. Here we go again. Who knows if I'm going to meet the requirements today? Even with all that water around, we become only more and more spiritually parched and thirsty. Because the ocean of water with which we try to make ourselves acceptable doesn't quench our soul or satisfy. But the Old Testament prophets knew that the way to bring God near was with wine and not with water. With the wine that makes men merry, the wine that gladdens the heart of God, that only God can give, that only God is. So what was the deeper reality that was, that was taking this water and turning it into wine? That was, what was the deeper reality that that was all pointing to? That in the coming of Jesus into this world, we come to the hinge point of human history when God steps in and intervenes. That in Jesus, God has indeed saved the best for last. That in Jesus, there is joy abundant, joy filled to the brim. That this Jesus who transformed those 150 gallons of stale water into fine wine is nothing less than the promised one who opens the door and brings thirsty and unsatisfied humanity into the rich wine of joyful abundance and abundant joy that God holds out to us. A life that no amount of scrubbing and scraping and of wringing and rinsing can be brought about in ourselves. The sign is nothing less than the fulfillment of what John writes in his prologue, chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So where do you find your soul today? Do you find yourself in a place of spiritual dryness? Maybe surrounded by jars and jars of religious and spiritual water in our culture, but still thirsty? Are you trapped in the flatness of the everyday and find yourself longing for that day? Isaiah, one of the prophets who looked ahead to the coming day of the Lord when the Messiah would come and fulfill God's promises on earth, he offers this invitation that still stands extended to us today. We sang it at the beginning of our service, come, all you who are thirsty, come, buy wine and milk without money, and without cost. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. All that is necessary for us to experience the fullness of what God has for us is for us to open ourselves to the wine that is Jesus. And when we do, when we invite him in, we can't just scoot some things over in the pantry and make a little bit of room for him on a shelf alongside all those other things that we turn to to satisfy our hunger and our thirst. 
We need to clear out the pantry. We need to open up the whole of our lives and make the whole of our life into a vessel that is ready to receive him, to take him in and to pour him out the joy that is Jesus. Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Have you ever opened your life to that which alone is able to give life to your soul? I'm going to ask you to pray with me now and it may be that what I pray this morning will be the very first time that you open your heart to Jesus. Lord Jesus, this morning, I admit my thirst for something more. I confess that I have turned to so many places to satisfy the hunger and the thirst deep within me, but my soul remains parched and unsatisfied. I realize now that this deep thirst of my heart is a thirst for you. And you put it there. Jesus, I believe that in you, God comes to quench the thirst for himself that God has placed in every human heart. And I open my life to you, the new wine. Bring joy to my weary heart, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that through your death in my place, you purchased the forgiveness for the sin that has made me an unfit vessel for your presence. And I receive your forgiveness. And I open myself to your loving presence. By your spirit, I pray that you would fashion my life into a vessel that is suited to receive and to carry you. Fill me with the joy of your presence and make me into a vessel fit to pour that life, to pour that joy into the lives of others. We pray this, Jesus, in your name.